Tenekoto, Nomai, Hairamai. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Walk in the Shadowlands podcast. Let me be your guide as we take a walk into the realms of the unexplained, of the paranormal, of things that go bump in the night and haunt your dreams. I'm Marianne. Thanks so much for joining me today, tonight, whatever time it is, wherever you're living in this beautiful world of ours. Sit back, relax, let me be your guide as we walk into the Shadowlands together and see what awaits us there. Hello everyone, welcome back. A special welcome to new listeners. Thank you for joining us today. I'm very pleased to welcome back this episode, a person that I enjoy talking with very much. This guest is very well known for his previous book that we discussed on his last appearance on our podcast. In fact, I included his episode in my four favourite episodes that I replayed as I was healing from my accident. It was the last one I played two episodes back called Escaping from Eden. As I was looking up some information for that episode, I discovered to my delight that Paul had recently completed his follow-on to his bestseller first book, Escaping from Eden, called The Scars of Eden. So I immediately contacted him, got a hold of and read his new book in one sitting. It was very riveting. We reconnected to talk about this book and his further discoveries. Honestly, I was surprised that he had completed this book so quickly, knowing how long some publishers take to get books out to the general public. But here we are, and I'm so excited to walk back into the Shadowlands with Paul as our guide. Are you willing to come along and see where in the Shadowlands we'll end up this time? Then let's begin. Born in Buckinghamshire, England, my guest Paul Anthony Wallace enjoyed periods of life in Bath, Nottingham, Portsmouth and London. As a youth, he commuted for a 10-year period between the UK and Canada, later settling in Australia. His travels have included horse trekking in the depths of the Grand Canyon and the heights of the Himalayas, swimming in the Amazon, parachuting in Australia, and surviving a charging rhinoceros in Zambia, along with more peaceful pilgrimages to Egypt, Zimbabwe, France, Portugal, Spain, Italy, Greece, Turkey, Germany, Switzerland, Belgium, Hong Kong, Singapore, New Zealand and Kashmir. His studies in language, linguistics and theology took him to the University of Bath, England, the Machiavelli Institute in Florence, Italy, St. John's College and the University of Nottingham in the UK and to Brazil's Instituto Pastoral Regional in Belém, Amazonia. Paul is a popular speaker, researcher and author of books on spirituality and mysticism. Today, his work probes world mythology and ancestral narratives for their insight into human origins and human potential and for the releasing of our potential for a better, 
More Conscious Human Experience. He is the author of the international bestseller Escaping from Eden, which was hailed by George Norrie as this generation's Chariots of the Gods. Paul's latest book, The Scars of Eden, is endorsed by Eric von Daniken. Paul hosts the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube and co-hosts the Fifth Kind TV in partnership with Gaia TV. I'd like to welcome my guest, Paul Anthony Wallace. so much for joining us again i'm really excited to have you back as a guest again on on walking the shadowlands podcast last time we talked last year your book escaping from eden had come out and was doing exceptionally well Uh, it's a absolutely fabulous book and our conversation remains one of my favorite conversations i've had with guests uh, I really enjoyed it immensely. Oh, thank you so much, Marianne. I really enjoyed our conversation last time, and thank you for having me on again. A lot has happened in the last year for all of us, I think. But yes, a whole, yes. A whole other yes. book has emerged since last we spoke, which is one thing. Yeah, very, very good book. Thank you. I I sat down and I read it through in one sitting. Um, once I got the chance to, you know, have some time and wow, sit and read it. Wow, in one it. sitting. And, yeah, yeah. Good on you. <laughs> Well, I'm a a fast reader for one, and when it's a subject that interests me and has my attention, then, you know, I'm quite focused. Now, I want to say your last episode has, since it aired, has consistently been in my top five episodes at a six season. Oh, lovely. Yeah, it's really resonated with my listeners and, you know, it really people are ready to hear that message i believe yeah it would seem to be i'm i'm certainly i i've heard that from other people who've done interviews where they have a platform that covers a whole range of interesting phenomena when we get onto this territory there is a strong interest and they do see a boost in their listening and viewing figures which 
I find really exciting. It means I'm writing on this topic at the right time. Yeah, you absolutely are. I was so excited when I was just because I had an accident, so I wasn't able to work on the podcast. And I've replayed my favourite four episodes out of the six seasons. And last week was your episode. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Um, but by the, time, by the time this gets to air, it will be a few weeks ago. But And it got me to thinking and I was looking up your, your information and then I saw you had your new book out. And so I was really excited to contact you again and uh, to, one, read your book to see it as, as a follow-on. So perhaps... Perhaps we could start, Paul, if you if you want to talk about escaping from Eden and, and what set you on there and then what brought you to your new book. Yes, escaping from Eden happened because I was very blessed with some time to uh, spend alone doing some study, some research, and just follow some white rabbits down some rabbit holes, things I'd been wanting to investigate for some time. And... My career has been in church ministry, 33 years in congregation-based ministry, and a big part of what I did was training pastors in how to interpret ancient texts, the science of hermeneutics, and obviously that then gets applied to the Bible and their preaching. And in my reading of the Bible and preaching from the Bible and training others to teach from it, I had over the years noted down a number of anomalies in the stories that we tell ourselves from those texts, things that didn't quite make sense, things that don't work as a moral story or as a history, you think what was going on there. And for the most part, preachers are just as busy as everybody else and they don't have the time to go back when they've promised themselves, I must go and look at that more deeply. Well, I was very blessed with what I called in my book an ultimate Frisbee injury. I really did have an ultimate Frisbee injury, but I use it as a metaphor, really, for the times when the universe has offered me the opportunity for some time out, time in retreat, time for study. And I went back to these texts and found that the anomalies really boiled down to some very key fundamental translation questions. Now, my first love as a student was languages and linguistics. And I studied French, German, Latin, Portuguese, Italian, Greek. I think, think it was just those, but because I had a passion for language. And so when I came to reading the Bible and asking questions about the texts, my first question is always, what do the words mean? And as I drilled down into some of these questions, I found that there are key words. Elohim is one, and it's the old word, the original word that gets translated as God in the ancient texts. And I found actually it's a plural word. And you take it by the root meaning, it means the powerful ones. And suddenly that explained why the verb forms it takes are plural verbs a lot of the time why the behaviours it exhibits are plural behaviours, why it seems to have plural agendas, where Elohim conflict against each other. These are the stories that begin to surface when you retranslate. So I asked myself what would happen to these old familiar stories if I retell them with Elohim in the plural all the way through. At the moment, the word gets translated, I would say, rather arbitrarily. In some texts, it's translated as God, 
In others where the Elohim are on the wrong side, it'll be demon or demons, false god, false gods, even chieftain or landlords or sometimes angels. So I thought, get back to the roots of it. Retell those stories as the stories of the powerful ones and see what happens. And I found that what happens is those stories do a dramatic flip. The moral questions resolve and suddenly you realize you are staring at the Sumerian stories retold in summary mm. form in the Bible. And the Sumerian stories on which they're based are not stories about God. They're stories about sky people, people who came to Earth from another planet, colonized our planet and governed over our distant ancestors. And that was the red pill that set me on the journey that led to escaping from Eden. And obviously, I then have to think, well, this reframes a lot of things. What are the implications of this? And then I started looking for correlations mm. in other ancestral narratives all around the world, cultures at different times and different places, apparently with no contact with each other. And yet their stories mm. seem to carry the same ancient memory. And that's the territory that Escaping from Eden explores. Well, it led to the scars of Eden because as soon as Escaping from Eden was published, I found I was being contacted by people every week, most weeks, every day, by people who had either seen the same things in the texts and didn't know where to go with that. And so I was hearing from senior clergy, pastors, theologians, people of faith, or people who had been absolutely on the fringe or outside of faith because of these strange aspects to these stories. They couldn't take seriously stories about God that portrayed God as so violent and implacable. And mm. so they had not bought in to their family's faith. People like that. But also I was mm. hearing from people who had had anomalous experiences and particularly close encounters with what they believed were extraterrestrial entities. And often I have found that people who contact me will say things like this. I had an counter when I was 15 years old. It changed my life. I have told my spouse about it. I have talked to the person I was with when the thing happened. And I haven't told another living, breathing soul in the 50 years since it happened. Now, that's the power of ridicule and the fear of ridicule that surrounds anomalous experiences and in particular close encounters. And yet 50 years on, right. People contact me because they still need to process what happened. They still mm. need to understand it and, and square it somehow with the world they live in. And a lot of the personal coaching I do with people through my website is people who need a handhold in that processing. And then another group of people I started hearing from were veterans of war. And in particular, people who had gone with the Allies into Afghanistan or into Iraq in mm -hmm. 2003. And what I was hearing, and I should say, I, I probably hear from more veterans of war than I know, because I think those who are still in active service often don't identify themselves that way. But I was hearing from a lot right. of veterans of war who are uh, no longer in active service. And they have told me that they went into Iraq believing that they were laying their life on the line for all the publicly declared reasons. They believed they were risking right. their lives to save the Kurds. 
or to save the mm. world from weapons of mass destruction or to save the Iraqis from Saddam Hussein and effect a regime change. Only when they got there, they found that their particular unit was actually there on an archaeological mission. And what they were being tasked mm. to do was to retrieve archaeological artifacts, sequester them, take them out of Iraq, take them back to the USA. And all of a sudden, they're left asking, what am I risking my life for? What are these artifacts? What's the relevance mm. of them? Why can't I know what they are? Why can't I know where they've gone? When are we going to hear what they are, what the research is that's been done on them? And they couldn't get any answers. And so those questions led them very quickly to the Mesopotamian stories from Sumeria, Babylonia, Arcadia, and Assyria, because they realized these artifacts were connected with those stories, the world's most ancient right. known stories about human origins and our place in the cosmos. And as soon as they were onto that territory, that got them quickly to escaping from Eden and to the Fifth Kind TV and into conversation with me. And for me, talking to those people is so humbling. And I just found mm -hmm. such a sense of compassion for people whose whole world had been overturned by this experience. The world is not about mm -hmm. what they thought it was about and their place in it was different to what they thought it was. So there's a lot of processing uh, that people have to mm -hmm. go through after an experience like that. But there was another reason I had to write The Scars of Eden. I had to go further with these questions. Uh, and that was that shortly before Escaping from Eden came out, I suddenly realized I was going to have to tell my parents-in-law about this controversial new book that was coming out. My parents-in-law, they're wonderful people. They're devout Christians, Baptist, Pentecostal background. They're from Ghana. And I thought, oh, my goodness, they might struggle a little bit with this book where the subtitle was, does Genesis teach that the human race was created by God or engineered by ETs? That might upset the apple cart a bit, and I am their son-in-law, so I better <laughs> prepare them for this. So they came and stayed with us for the weekend in Canberra, and uh, we had some lovely food and some nice wine, and when everyone was relaxed, I thought, okay, this is the moment I can mention the book. So I ran through with them everything that I've just said to you, Marianne, looking to see what their reaction might be. And they sat there poker-faced. I had no idea how they were taking this. And when I finally finished my little speech, my father-in-law leant back and he said, Paul, a penny has dropped, meaning that all the anomalies that I had noticed, he had noticed too, and he had carried those questions for decades and it had kept him a little bit uh, cautious in some ways in his engagement with the faith because he knew there were some questions not quite answered. And now, oh, that's what those stories are about. Oh, that's what those wars were about. It's now making sense. And my mother-in-law went forward and said, Paul, we already know this story. She said, in Ghana, we are taught the Christian explanation of things and we're taught the modern scientific explanation of things. But there is also a local knowledge, a folkloric knowledge, indigenous knowledge that we're not alone on the planet. We're not alone in this part of the cosmos and that there is a presence on planet Earth that has an involvement with human affairs, 
even to the point of abducting human beings from time to time and involving them in some kind of a hybridization program that's going on. And it's been going on for thousands of years. And in Ghana, we call these people the Mamiwata people. In fact, right. we have a family very closely connected with ours who have experienced a Mamiwata abduction. Their daughter was taken for three years, taken from the beach at Anloga in the Kita district of the Volta region of Ghana, taken for three years and then returned mm. healthier than when she went away. But with a story that she didn't share for a long time, she was so embarrassed and disturbed by it. But the story was that she had been taken, held in an underwater base, had been nicely treated other than the fact she wasn't allowed to leave for three years and had been used to produce children and that the people who had held her looked human, but they weren't. They were the Mammy Water people. Mm. Well, when her parents heard that, it was not what they expected to hear at all. They were expecting a story of a failed elopement or slave trafficking or something like that. They were so shocked to hear it from their own daughter and yet it was not an unfamiliar story. It's one that Ghanaians have told for thousands mm -hmm. of years. Well, my jaw dropped when I heard this. I didn't know anything about this. I, I have Ghanaian heritage. Mm -hmm. I didn't know any of this indigenous knowledge. I had no idea our family was so connected. And it sent me on a journey all around the world. And I realized that this is not a story that belongs only to Ghana. It's all down the eastern mm -hmm. coast of Africa, down to the southern cone, all up the west. Western seaboard into the Caribbean, Brazil, Haiti, Cuba, all have iterations of the story as far east as the mm. Philippines, where they have vocabulary that exists only to tell these stories. That vocabulary mm. has roots in India. This is my linguistic brain coming in. If you go into Europe, the whole of Europe is named after an abductee. Europa was the daughter of a king of Phoenicia who was abducted by a non-human entity made to have three hybrid children or boys, one of whom was Minos, the progenity of the Minoan mm. culture. Now, what I've just said is taught as history in Greece, not fable. Mm. That's the history, and Europe is named after this lady. You then go into the Norse countries. You'll hear similar story there. Go into Wales, Scotland, Ireland. Same stories are told with every detail of my Ghanaian friend's story repeated. It's such an mm. unlikely and bizarre story, but the details repeat. Mm. And when I had made that journey, I realized I could not ignore the abduction phenomena in The Scars of Eden. It was not my ambition to write a book that would tackle the abduction phenomenon particularly, because uh, as much as any writer, I'd like to be taken seriously. And I know that people really, really struggle <laughs> with the right. whole idea of abduction. Right. You can just about talk about, are we in a populated universe? But as soon as someone's mm. saying, I was abducted by aliens, I had an alien baby, well, that is absolutely at the ridicule end of the spectrum. But I found the moment you start listening mm. with respect to the elders mm. of our ancient cultures, the abduction story is front and center of their stories of paleo contact. And we have to do business with it, ask what it means. What is the memory that's being carried and what are the implications of it? And so that is one of the threads in the Scars of Eden. So those are all the reasons I just had to go on 
on a longer journey and share the journey in the scars of Eden. I can see how uh, escaping from Eden led you to, to this part. But of course, not all experiences are abductions. I know personally, I've never been abducted. I've been an experiencer my entire life. And, and I've never, ever not talked about it. I've always talked about my experiences my entire Wonderful. life. Ag- again, I got, you know, ridiculed. My, you know, people said, oh, she's just crazy. Even my family members, the ones, but my family have always had experiences. They haven't had the personal experiences that I've had, but they've seen UFO, they've seen crafts close up. They just haven't had the uh, a face-to-face interaction that I have had. Very often I've found as I've had these conversations there is far more of a family connection uh, of experiences Absolutely. than people often realize. Just, just as an illustration, mm-hmm. I was talking the other day to a friend of mine who's in ministry, and I'm very grateful for this friend because he's been like an accountability partner for me for about 18 years. Uh, and so I was very relieved right. and pleased that he um, really enjoyed these more recent books that have gone on to more controversial territory. And he was talking to his dad about the scars of Eden, not knowing what his reaction would be. His dad had just said, oh, what, what's Paul up to these days? And my friend Mark said, oh, well, he's written these very interesting books. And he told his dad, having no idea how his dad would react. And when Mark had finished, his dad got up, went and found a box, brought it over, opened it up, and lifted out some pieces of paper showing the drawings that Mark's grandfather had made of close encounters he had experienced way, way back in the 40s or 50s, I think it was. My friend Mark had no idea because this story had Mm. been carried in silence for two generations in this family. And now it's there. So when people come to me and say, I've had this experience, and there's a huge spectrum, as you rightly point out, Marianne, of experiences. Some are very happy Uh, profound, Mm. spiritual, life-affirming experiences, and some people have very traumatic experiences, and there's the whole spectrum in between. Absolutely. And when people say they've had this experience and they they feel that they have had the uninvited attention of other beings, I will often ask, have your parents experienced anything like this? And they'll say, oh, Mm. no, not to my knowledge. No, I, in fact, I haven't told them about it. I have no idea what they'd think. And then about a week later, I'll get an email saying, I talked to my dad and he opened up to me about what happened to him when he was 15. And the dad hasn't told the son because he wants to protect the son from his bizarre experience. The son hasn't told the father because he doesn't want to disturb the father or their relationship. Finally, one of them summons the courage to share their experience and they realize this goes through the family. I was talking to a pastor from the UK the other day who had noticed um, a boy in her Sunday school who has an unusual level of intelligence for his age, very sensitive, um, very aware, very intelligent, thoughtful, seemingly older than his years. And she thought, I must talk to his mum. So she went to see the mum and she wanted to find a tactful way of saying, was there anything unusual? 
uh, about your third son here, his his your pregnancy with him, or something like that, because she was beginning to suspect there was another layer to this story. She's right, had a lot right. of parishioners who've had close encounters, and that was what she was wondering. When she got to the house, uh, she had that conversation with the mother, and the mother said, well, it's funny you should say that, because I've had four kids. I, I know what conception is. I know what pregnancy is. I know what birth is. And yes, with the third one, something very different happened. And she'd had a profound experience, a paranormal encounter on the night mm. of his conception, which she had not told anybody other than, I think, her mother. Mm. But now she was telling her parish priest. Before my friend, the parish priest, got to that conversation, the moment she walked in the door of that house, the grandmother was present. And the grandmother, instead of saying, oh, good evening, vicar, or a greeting like that, just immediately blurted out, I've seen fairies. And all of a sudden, my friend realized we've got three generations with different experiences, a different language, but they are all related. And the language of fairies mm -hmm. is the language that was used by the Celtic peoples from hundreds of years ago to describe not Tinkerbell uh, or some imaginary mm. figure like that, but to describe paranormal encounters with beings who are similar to us but smaller and who are involved in abductions and hybridization. The original fairy stories that were studied centuries ago were not cute stories for kids. They were very disturbing mm. stories about another presence on planet Earth. And so I tell that story to point out that there's different language in different generations and mm -hmm. often a family connection, different vocab around the world. But you start putting the stories alongside each other and you realise that we're being told the same thing. Mm. Yeah, really interesting, isn't it? And the, the Faye connection, like I've always known that Faye are interdimensional, but they do, even in New Zealand traditional Māori mythology, the, the fae or the patiparehe are known to abduct women. They're not so kind to men. Men they often killed, but women they would take and they would return unharmed sometime later. Mm. So, yeah, it's throughout the whole world. It's very, very interesting. Now, look, I've got a, a whole page of notes here that I took when I read your book, and what I'd like to, I'd like to also talk about your experience. Now, when we spoke last time, my gut said to me, oh, you've had experiences, and whether you recall them <laughs> or not, I know that you're going to at some stage. Yes, that's, that's exactly right, and you, you had that right. And I found that as I began getting into conversation with experiencers who are contacting me, very often they'd want to sound me out very carefully before sharing their story because they weren't just, you know, mm. looking for any old ear to pour their story into. They wanted to know right. I could be trusted with a story they had guarded so carefully for decades. And the sounding out questions would often be, Paul, have you had a close encounter? And so early mm. on, my answer would have been, no, I haven't, but I have many friends who have, but as I listened to more and more stories, I started thinking, hold on, just a minute, I did experience 
something funny when I was 20 that I've never got my head around. And as I began joining the dots, I realized that when I was 20, five very bizarre, anomalous things happened that year. Experiences where I could remember part of what happened and then couldn't remember what happened next, where I, I didn't know how it had mm. happened, what that meant, what it was I was seeing or not seeing, or what had caused this glitch in my memory, this experience of lost time. And as I began reflecting on those, I realized that when I had these experiences at 20 years old, I interpreted them through my worldview of that moment. And as a young, enthusiastic mm, nice. Christian, my worldview included boxes for God, the devil, angels, demons, human, animal, vegetable, mineral, and energy, and uh, nothing else. Right. And so these odd right. experiences, I had to put in one of those boxes. So I had one experience that was very disturbing and frightening, and I thought, well, the only box I can put that in is demonic, so I'll put it there. Uh, but it, I knew it didn't quite fit there. The experience was too material mm. to be that. It didn't quite make sense theologically. And yet I let that lie for all that time. And then another experience where I encountered some people and had a profound sense that they were not human. And I couldn't explain why I had that feeling. And that had sat with me. And I thought, well, they had a really lovely energy they threw off. So I put them in the box that says angel except they had a toddler with them do angels have babies that doesn't quite so that didn't sit quite right either and I had a few other experiences too now having done the research I've done for escaping from Eden and the scars of Eden and listened to heaps of other people's experiences I realized there are a whole load of other boxes you could tick all other kinds of entity we're in a very interesting mm -hmm. universe with interdimensional realities, with energy-based entities, with extraterrestrial entities. And I'd gone back to my experiences and thought, they belong in that box. That was a close encounter, mm -hmm. that first one. That was another close, that was another close encounter. And then to start wondering, okay, I'm now labeling differently the experiences I can remember. But what did happen next? What was the thing I can't remember? And that's the journey I'm on in the Scars of Eden. And it sort of ends on a cliffhanger uh, of beginning to uncover what that story might be. But it's helped me to understand why this topic of paleo contact has always been important to me. Why I have always right. wanted to listen with respect to other experiences, even mm -hmm. at times when I only had um, the popular story of ridicule against which to measure people's testimonies. Something deep in me has always said, no, you need to listen to this. And uh, it's rooted in my own experience. And the reason I tell my stories in the Scars of Eden is not because they're dramatic stories. My experiences are nothing like a Whitley Strieber or a Travis Walton story. My stories are, I have a vague recollection of something, I'm not quite sure what it was. I've always puzzled over it. And I share them because I think I wouldn't put a percentage on it, but let me say if you sat down any friendship circle or any family circle and asked the question, have you ever experienced something 
You don't know what it was. You can't explain it. You've always puzzled over it. Every circle and possibly every individual would have an answer to that question. And if we can listen to each other's stories like that, stories that we think are about nothing, we listen to each other and pull those stories, a coherent picture will begin to emerge. And it is a picture that has to do with the fact that we're not alone on this planet. There are other presences here. Absolutely. And Paul, on a personal level, your experiences have been for a reason, and I can give you part of the reason. All your life you've been drawn to helping others. You knew you had this work to do, right? That's right. But you didn't know what it was. Well, you're actually doing it because I suspect, like myself, you have been taught how to speak to people about this subject, how to bring it open to people, how to educate people and bring it into public awareness. And this is part of the reason why I do my podcast and part of the reason why I had my group, because I'm not a writer, but I can talk. (laughs) And I'm not shy about talking about my experiences. And people like us have been taught by our our sky people, as you call them, by by my star people, as I call them, to do this work because we're not scared to and somebody has to do it. I think that's absolutely right, Marianne, and I have really enjoyed um, my work in ministry in the church context for 33 years where I've learned some listening skills, I hope, and learned some pastoral skills. And in a way, I see all that as preparation for the work I'm doing now, which is really pastoral work, helping people to process these experiences, to reframe what's happened. It's really pastoral work. But also the writing and the theological work is preparation for what I'm doing now. And as a writer, a writer is simply someone who shares the journey to help other people on similar journeys. And that's what I've done with all my books all through the years, and that's what Escaping from Eden and the Scars of Eden are doing, and I hope breaking a taboo for new generations so that they can recognise their own experiences and talk about them, and so that those of us Mm. who have had these experiences or have been paying attention to other peoples are not just sitting twiddling our thumbs waiting for the government to own up to the fact we've been in contact, (laughs) if we can get conversations with respect going among ourselves, then that is a grassroots wave of disclosure and declassification that help us understand where we're living, but almost, I would think more importantly than that, remember who we are, what our potential Mm. is, and the kinds Mm. of life that we can live when we switch on a little bit more to who we are and allow ourselves to live a bit more conscious and a bit more intelligently on this planet together. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Awesome, isn't it? It's awesome. I can absolutely see looking at at, at your history, how you've been prepped and prepared the whole way. You've had the studies in ancient literature. You've had the world studies. You've got your linguistics. So everything that you've done in your life has prepped you for this journey that you're currently on. And it's quite exciting, actually, isn't it? It is. It's an amazing journey. Uh, It involves a lot of 
reframing and uh, you know i have mm. to be willing to be um kind of on the on the cusp of the conversation with regard to people of faith participating in the conversation because it's been such a taboo but i realize now looking back that many of the people i've admired through christian history were people who had powerful experiences that pushed them right mm. to the edge of the orthodox mm -hmm. world and beyond and so i would include people like saint seraphim of sarov who was a russian mystic lived from 1759 to 1833 who had very powerful what at the time were anomalous experiences of precognition remote viewing powers of healing and all that mm. made him very sought out by the general public but it pushed him right to the fringe of what was acceptable in orthodoxy in russia at that time or even someone like john right. wesley who people might perceive as being right in the heart of the christian tradition actually he was uh, the leader of a revival in which people were having spiritual experiences of god that pushed them outside of the church scene and then he had to work out a way of mm. of pastoring those people and very often the stories of religious revival you read them again and you realize this is people who've been uh propelled out of their comfortable boxes out of the religious mainstream because they've just had a direct mm. experience of some kind and so the fact that i've been interested in that aspect of history interested in those figures all of those people had to work out how to occupy territory where they would be a figure of scorn derision ridicule right. and yet they were wanting to make a journey as a person of integrity to the thing they just learned or discovered and so i guess i've been learning those lessons for decades as well not quite mm. anticipating it was True. going to be about et contact in the future but <laughs> that's the, that's how i got my lessons in advance Yeah, and it's quite interesting how it prepares us. For me, like, I was always, I always talked about my star people encounters and, you know, people, you know, not always to my benefit, mostly to my detriment, but it didn't stop me because I'm all about living my truth yes. and, and walking my talk. And I've always been absolutely open and I have said, and that's one of the reasons I started this podcast was to at least get people questioning. And I think that is the, the, the great thing that both your books, Escaping from Eden and Scars of Eden do, is they cause people to question. And, and questioning is good because it opens doors and it leads to people finding their own path and finding waking i call it, it waking it, it does and you know initially um challenging people with questions people have to sort of psych themselves up to engage with the questions yep. and i have some friends who are just refusing to read my books because they don't want the questions yeah, yeah, but once you said all right i'm gonna i'm gonna go there and you come away with questions it ignites such an appetite and you realize yes. you're in a whole new season of your life now with you're on a journey of mm -hmm. learning and it's a rejuvenating experience 
to begin wrestling with a whole mm. new set of questions. Mm. And I want to go back to what you said about labeling, you know, how you, you had to give things labels. One of the things my star people have constantly said to me over the, over my entire lifetime and they find it so endlessly amusing is how humans have this need yes. to label and categorize. Yes, we need boxes. We have to have labels for everything, boxes for yep. everything, yeah. And they find this endlessly amusing. It's just a facet of humanity Yes, that, that really intrigues I, it, That is so true. Uh, and perhaps for me, it's a mid-step to say we need far more boxes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but beyond that, uh, you know, for instance, is one of the um, one of the things people say to me when they are sort of uh, wrestling with the material I'm offering them, if they've come from a faith background, they they will start using the language of angels, mm. um, which is fine. Uh, and uh, there are experiences we and our ancestors have that we have labelled that way, but I often find I have to point out that the word angel doesn't tell you anything about the genus of that being. It doesn't tell you what kind of being you're looking at. It doesn't tell you anything about their biology. The word angel simply tells you that that entity is on a mission or that that right. entity has a message. And something called an angel in this text over here could be a totally different kind of entity to something called an angel over here. And another example uh, would be, um, there's a, a fascinating verse in, in 1 John 4 in the New Testament, which is curious because it's about channeling. And Christians don't expect to find mm. a pro-channeling text in the New Testament and yet here's this verse where the writer, John, is talking about Christians doing channeling and saying, don't believe every spirit or don't believe everything that every spirit says to you. Weigh it up, test it. And if some spirit comes along and tells you just to trash everything you believe about Jesus, well, don't pay any attention to that one because there are bad spirits out there as well as good spirits. So that's what he says. So right away, he's affirming the fact that Christians are going to be hearing from entities that are not physical entities, mm. and they there'll be some who are trying to help them and others who might be trying to confuse them. So what's interesting about that is who are they? Mm. <laughs> it doesn't say. Yes. Spirit, what does that mean? It doesn't say. It's just left very vague. And so is he talking about... Um, other kinds of being? Is he talking about other physical beings that communicate telepathically? Is he talking about energy-based beings, uh, interdimensional beings? Is he talking mm. about ancestors? Could be any or all of those. And yeah. it doesn't seem to matter to him because he doesn't tie that down. He just says, be discerning about what you hear from spirits. And that is an amazing permission-giving text, in my view. Yes, be discerning, but expect that you're going to get help from a spiritual team, and you won't necessarily know who they are, but you, you've got help around you. And that goes alongside another text that has always fascinated me from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament that says, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, 
And the writer is talking about people who lived on earth before us. And he says, since we're surrounded, he doesn't say preceded. Mm. He says we're surrounded by them and they're very interested in us and our lives and how we are running the race marked out for us. Now, these two things together tell me that we've got company Mm. and the company isn't all negative or scary like ghosts or aliens as we picture them from Mars attacks or invasion of body snatchers. (laughs) Part of this soup in which we're living is beneficial. Mm. And we have presences around us who are here to help and here to guide and not to be afraid to recognize that and engage with it. And unfortunately, a lot of our religious traditions have taught us to be afraid of anything we can't label, anything we don't fully understand. And we've got to live more boldly and confidently than that. Absolutely. And not only not only religions, also the the movie propaganda that's been put out, um, yes. mostly the alien alien stuff apart from Star Trek series is very negatively based because it's deliberate to incite fear in people. Again, it's that fear button, isn't it? Definitely. Uh, I think you're right. I think there's probably more uh, than just Star Trek these days that has that more positive worldview, and I'm very intrigued by um, canons like the Star Trek canon or the the Marvel Universe canon because I've learned that ancient ancestral knowledge uh, often finds its way into those movie scripts. Mm, Absolutely. Uh, Some Mm. ancient knowledge has been protected and therefore Mm. it's become esoteric traditions, and those esoteric traditions often leak information back into the mainstream through novels, through movies, through television series. And it's very deliberate and it's very conscious. And at another level, some of those writers, um, when you write, when you create, very often you will realize that you are channeling without knowing that's what you're doing. Uh, Mm -hmm. Even someone at the level um, of of a stand-up comedian who is, composing in the moment who's performing Mm. spontaneously can do their hour set and walk off stage thinking oh my goodness where did all that come from yeah exactly and storytelling is an amazing way of tapping information we hold subconsciously but also tapping those spirits who are around us to guide our thinking and assist us that's yeah. the belief I've come to through <laughs> through the research that began with ETs and biblical texts that all these things are connected and begin opening up. Oh, absolutely. Wow, this has been totally paradigm shifting for you, really, hasn't it, this journey? It's like from your very conservative roots to where you are today, it's almost like day and night. Uh, well, no, it's not really. It's more of an expanded view, an expanded it is. view. Mm. It's an expansion, exactly. And it's enabled me to unpack the implications of things I've been noticing all through the years. And in a way, when I go back to the Gospels, for instance, again, I go back with my linguist hat on and say, how might we translate that differently? Because it's so difficult to read religious texts without hearing it in a religious way. Of course, With all the cultural layers of interpretation that are on top of every word in a sentence, it's challenging. 
I now realize if I go back to the first sermon that Jesus toured with, according to Matthew's gospel, you translate those words again by their root meanings of what he was saying was, and it was a message so important, he shared this wherever he went, he was saying the amazing power of the source is available to everybody. Uh, and that's kind of a summary of what I've been learning and all the reframing of mm. my uh, religious faith, my theological journeys, the anomalies I've noticed, the people I've encountered who are totally outside of a religious world or totally outside of a faith realm and who are yet on the same journey, participating in the same things. That sermon explains to me why that is, that the amazing power of the source is available to everyone. Mm. And that's what I'm beginning to see. Mm. Very, very interesting. Now, let me go to some of these notes I have here because there's a few things. In, in your book, in Scars of Eden, you've got a quote from President Wilson saying, somebody, something, a power, somewhere, so organised, so subtle, so watchful, so inter, inter, oh, I can't interlocked. read my writing, interlocked, interlocked. So, yeah. so pervasive is watching us. Well, well, I added that is watching us, but he's talking about about those that currently control this reality that we're aware of. Yes, yes, he is. And some people call that. There are a lot of names that people use for that, but they're only looking at figureheads, not the actual beings behind it. You know, like the names they might have, like Illuminati. Yes. The the powers that be. Yes. There's a lot of the, names. The one percent. The, the elites, the yeah. military-industrial complex. Yes. And, yes, that's right. It's a really interesting quote from uh, Woodrow Wilson. It, it is echoed again by uh, a later president who warned about the military-industrial complex, which was Eisenhower, if I'm remembering correctly. And you can read it at a number of levels. Some people will say what Woodrow Wilson was warning about was the power of corporations and certainly yes he was talking about that but uh, the story is bigger than that and mm -hmm. the moment you start listening to ancestral narratives you realize there's a human layer to this question of who's really governing us yes. and then there's a non-human layer to it too so the Gnostic Gospels talk about archons that That's manipulate right. human leaders and then go to the Hebrew text and you've got the powerful ones who are in authority over the human leaders. And it's interesting that many of our ancient stories talk about a time when we were governed by non-humans and then talk about a time when there was a handover to human viceroys, regents, governments. Many of them have this handover moment. It's there in the Bible. King Saul mm. is the first human uh, leader for the people of God. Gilgamesh is the crossover king in the Sumerian stories. And there's just that little question mark of, well, so where did the non-human authorities go? Did they just mm -hmm. go home, but they're still at the top of the economic tree? Or are they still present but covert? Now, just before Christmas, Haim Ashed, the mm -hmm. former chief of space security for Israel, the Brigadier General who held that position for 27 years, came out with a statement saying that on the basis of his career, everything he knows from that work, his understanding is that there is an intergalactic federation uh, involved in Project Earth 
in contact at a covert level with covert layers of government, but that's chosen not to self-disclose. Well, he has just said what we were talking about, Mm -hmm. that there's a human layer to our stories of governance and there's a non-human layer. And it's only when you factor that in that you can begin to understand the real nature of our history and where we're at. Correct. I was actually going to mention him, so I'm glad you brought him up. Yeah, very, very interesting. And actually, that's been my knowledge my entire life, what my star people have taught me. Uh, and, and, and also, this year in March, Eric W. Davis was it Eric W. Davis and his comment yes, that he made about, is he a physicist, is he? Yes. Ah, okay. He made the comment about off-wheeled vehicles being not made on this earth. Yes, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> so he briefs the uh, ATIP, the Pentagon's uh, body that researches encounters and crash retrievals, and he was talking to the press uh, about his briefings and his phrase was off-world vehicles not made on this earth which makes it pretty clear <laughs> what we're talking about yeah so really the government's given disclosure that but they've done it in well they've been drip feeding as i said last time for about two or three years now steadily drip yes, feeding they since they released the military videos initially and then uh christopher mellon uh, was of course the gentleman who leaked those leaked yes, those. Yes, that's right. He was, and what's interesting is the authority of these figures who are making mm-hmm. these disclosures. And this Great. is what's new, I think, because um, a decade ago, uh, people who were paying attention raised an eyebrow when the Russian Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev on camera talking to a journalist, said that each successive prime minister of Russia is provided with a folder detailing the species that we're already in contact with. Mm -hmm. And his statement was not um, debunked uh, or disendorsed by uh, President Putin. Uh, There was no statement made to distance themselves. Uh, And that was a bit of a shift. Now we're seeing in the West people in authority making statements. So Chris Mellon is the former Assistant Secretary of Defence for Presidents Clinton and George W. Bush. Alan Jouye is the former Chief of Intelligence for for French Intelligence, and he has authenticated that ATIP studies UFOs and crash retrievals. Um, Paul Hellyer, of course, previous Minister of Defence has been talking for a while about these things. Hayama Shed, the former Chief of Space Security. So what's interesting is that's just one degree removed Mm. from being the person in authority making an official disclosure. Mm. Well, you can't get much closer than that, can you? And even with the briefings that are coming up later this year, the Senate intelligence briefings, again, there's that one degree removed. The government wanting to look innocent, of course, is saying Mm -hmm. to the Pentagon, please brief us with what you know about these things. And so there will be a briefing, which I think probably there may be more volume. We might know about more encounters than just the Tic Tac encounters and the pyramid-shaped craft, but it will amount to what's already been disclosed, I think. Mm -hmm. 
that we are in contact with ET technology. I doubt they're going to go the extra step and say, actually, we've been in conversation with them and collaboration for decades. Don't think they're <laughs> going to say that. But I think they will reauthenticate what we already have been told, which is mind-blowing enough that we are engaging and are in possession of ET technology, because mm. that is the big news. And mm. to me, it's surprising that there hasn't been a more massive reaction to the information that's already out there. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if it's because we're so distracted or yes. that the drip drip has actually worked and people are beginning to say, yeah, I think I'd worked out something was going on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's been a considerable, well, actually, my star people told me back in, in the 80s that the governments in the world had been given notice that they had to release information about extraterrestrial life and extraterrestrial reality or the choice would be taken out of their hand. And yes. at that stage, they were given a time limit. A specific, yes. not, that, not that our guys work on time because there is no time outside of this planet, but they were given a limit. And if they didn't release it, then the choice was going to be taken out of their hands. And um, so since then, they have they started really slowly. It started really subtly. Then all of a sudden, the media started not treating these stories with derision and yes. making a joke of them. And then things started being sped. And, and finally, in the past three years, you've got a constant. And then last year, when COVID was at its height, well, at the beginning of its height, that's when the Pentagon came out and said, well, these things are real. But yes. nobody jumped up and said, "Oh my God, the government's just acknowledged that 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 these are these are alien craft. Therefore, there must be aliens who made them." Yes. Uh, <laughs> nobody right. jumped up and said, "Oh my God, nobody." And it's because people are distracted, and and they did it deliberately during that period of time, so that they would have. Um, so when they do introduce alien species to humanity, which I don't feel is very far away, mm -hmm. that they can say, but we already told you. Yeah, don't you remember? We told you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I see it exactly the same way. I, it's almost like an insurance policy yes. um, for if the process of disclosure slips out of their control. That yes. They can say, don't you remember, we told you. Same with the Roman Catholic Church with the um, colloquium of a decade ago. Yes. They also can say, don't you remember, we told you. Yes. Oh, and yeah. wasn't that uh, Monsignor Balducci? Balducci? Yes. Well, absolutely. yes, he was. And I was very interested in what he had to say. And I really uh, applaud him for his boldness in his statements because he is uh, was at that time the Vatican senior advisor in ministry to the paranormal. And mm. what that usually means in a church setting is entity removal. Right. So exorcism of places, deliverance of people, uh, emotional healing of people. And he said, so this is his whole area of expertise. He said, when people report close encounters or abduction experiences, they are not describing a uh, psychotic break it's not a psychological phenomenon and mm. it's not a demonic phenomenon they are 
describing a totally different kind of entity, one that merits serious study. Mm. And when somebody of his seniority says that, especially in the context of the colloquium, it is an acknowledgement, again, by the Vatican, by the Curia, of non-human entities in contact with us, such as described by people who talk about abduction experiences. So again, a huge admission, a huge affirmation. Once again, couldn't believe how little attention and shock that elicited, but it's now out there and they can say, don't you remember we told you? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And, uh, you know, one thing that constantly um, irritates me immensely is the social manipulation that the those who control this reality use on humans humans think that they have this free will and that they're making their own decisions and their own choices but it's actually only an illusion of free will everything that we perceive everything that we see is very tightly controlled and manipulated so that we will think we will see in a certain way yes I think this is one of the things people really struggle with who had close encounters where they have or or other paranormal experiences where they get a glimpse into that, where Mm. they they see the codes behind the manifestations or or they realise that consciousness and time and space is not what they thought it was. And so they then come back into this, thing we perceive as the four-dimensional world and have to ask how do I live my life Mm. how do I make my decisions that now I've seen everything I've seen and some really struggle to do that Mm. can you get an ordinary job live an ordinary life in this world go and do your shopping do all the normal things when you have been so dislocated from the mainstream understanding of what it is we're all in. Some people really struggle with that and need help with that. And others are empowered by it because Mm -hmm. I think the potential is you can come back from an experience like that and live your life with much greater courage. As if it's almost as if, if I thought this was a dream, what would I do now? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, I think you can come back with that kind of fire in your belly when you have one of these revelatory experiences. And I find it very interesting when I read Plato, who had one of these revelatory experiences. Yes. It's all told in the voice of Socrates mm. in his writings, but I do think he's speaking for himself when it comes to this. He said that some of his beliefs, his conclusions, things he had concluded that he could not prove, he said he got those from a what we would call a psychedelic experience, mm, mm. an altered state of consciousness uh, where he perceived other layers to this reality. And I think that's where he got his idea of the matrix from, you know, the right. codes behind the material reality, these other entities who have an involvement in what's going right. on here. And his hope was that he could come back and inspire people to live in the light of that information. And what that meant for him was to live fearlessly. 
right, absolutely. To, to live mm. as if this is a dream and mm. with the kind of courage that that would give you. Mm. And again, I go back to the lives and teachings of people like Buddha or Jesus or John the Baptist or Lao Tzu. And that's what they were about. They were teaching us to live in that fearless, courageous, anything is possible kind of way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, the re- part of the reason I'm um, going back to the ma- manipulation that I get angry is because I see the ma- social manipulation that has been used on people today, like in the COVID situation. You hear yes. the media constantly constantly repeating these words unprecedented times oh new- i know yes i know it's horrible yeah and the thing that upsets me more than the fact that our journalists have been so intimidated by our governments mm-hmm. that they will not engage with the questions we should all be asking uh, not just irritated by media who just you know it's like everyone is saying this it's like we're living in 1984 right it's just become the ministry of information Mm. i get more frustrated and angry when i see my peers drinking it all in and repeating it all and then when it's proven wrong they'll drink in the new story and repeat all that Instead of asking more questions. questions. Yeah, it's the not questioning, isn't it? That's why I say getting people to question. And, and, you know, um, I call my podcast Walking the Shadowlands because of what we were talking about just a few minutes ago, that knowing uh, what reality is and not having to live in this reality is like walking in the shadowlands. One foot in the shadowlands, one foot in the shadowlands. It's a, a great way of thinking about it. I, I absolutely agree. And I, um, my personality wiring is that I find it very easy to get exasperated. <laughs> and so all the things we were just talking about, I find it very easy to get so frustrated and we can come away feeling very, very disempowered mm-hmm. when we see some of these manipulations going on. Uh, And that's why I love coming back to someone like Plato who reached that point in his life where he felt completely hopeless that he could shift the Mm. political conversations of the day and get it onto territory where a healthier society might be built. And Mm. he just made a decision of thinking, well, what I've got to do is actually shift people's thinking, Mm. shift people's consciousness. And I was talking with... um, Laura Lee Potman the other day on the Angel Rock. And I was saying we can feel very disempowered and we can just sit wringing our hands, wishing the manipulation wasn't going on, wishing for more transparent government, wishing for more democracy and just seeing no way of achieving it. But if we can impact ourselves and one another, if we can live with greater emotional intelligence, if I can mm. put it that way, then we, and we can't be led by a xenophobe. If we can yeah. be more emotionally intelligent as a culture, we won't be led by a demagogue. It's just not going to work. If we can be more emotionally intelligent, we're not easy to manipulate. Mm. And I think that, it, that can sound really complicated, but 
complicated how do we be more emotionally intelligent and i think the first thing and the thing we're most regularly taught by our spiritual ancestors is to switch the fear button off just don't bite into that yes you're hearing things that are terrifying if you go around terrified you are ripe for the picking just don't do it yeah yeah don't let yourself get pulled down into that morass of despair, exasperation, mm-hmm. depression, fear. If you can learn to step out of that a bit, look after yourself, mm-hmm. be conscious about what emotional state you're in, make some decisions about the energy you're going to move in today before you step out the front door. All of a sudden you're in a spot where you can't be pushed and pulled in the same mm-hmm. way. And if enough of us do that, then our culture can't be pushed and pulled in the same way. Correct, correct. One, my, one of the things my star people again said to me back in the 80s was that humanity had to reach a certain point in their development um, uh, before certain things could occur. Now, this hmm. energy was reached actually about two and a half, three years ago, about the time actually they, they really started pushing the thing that yes. I, I felt the difference in the energy as it came onto the planet. It was like a poof. Yes. And, and I knew that we had reached that tipping point. And I knew that from that, in fact, as soon as I felt it, I mentioned it in my um, page and uh, my group that I have, I mentioned that I had just felt the energy shift and here is what has happened and here is what will happen from here on in. And the things that I told them have actually uh, uh, come to pass like people, there would be a polarisation of people from that point on. Those that were opening and questioning would question more. And that was when we had the Me Too movement start. We had the young people standing up and saying, no, this is not acceptable. People are, are, are speaking up and they are waking up at a far greater rate now because there's uh, enough of people who are awake that the energy automatically goes out and affects everybody around them. Yes, it does. And I absolutely agree with what uh, you just said. Uh, a number of things seem to have been happening all at once. And mm-hmm. if you look at the world's geopolitics in the last five years i would say you can see a very disturbing trend uh, towards uh, power grabs uh, by elites polarization of populations by demagogues increase of xenophobia violence all that sort of thing and we began speaking five years ago saying it feels like we're going into the 1930s before mm. the Second World War. It's got that mood, that atmosphere to it. But then by the time uh, 2017, 2018 were coming along, I suddenly found I was on a journey of rapid learning. My wife was on a parallel journey of rapid learning, totally different track. I started by drilling down into Genesis My wife started by listening to near-death experiences and we found our journeys converged and we found ourselves on the same territory. And as we began comparing notes with friends, you know, anxiously thinking, oh, who can I mention this thought to that it won't absolutely freak out? And to our amazement, to use the language you just used, we found people all around us were waking up and were saying, I am questioning this thing I've always believed. I've questioning this authority that I've always trusted. 
and I'm beginning to look into this and this and this. Mm-hmm. And I started to be very surprised by what YouTube channels, various friends of mine were watching, channels to do with questioning mainstream narratives and making fresh mm-hmm. explorations. And I realized that there was an enormous appetite out there, such as I had never seen before, that represented a massive shift. And even before we had our conversations, yes, there was a shift in the energy. The yes. fact we were all in that place, we were feeling the effect of that. And it's almost like those experiments that are done where, you know, experiments with rats where one rat works its way out through the maze and then all of them mm. know how to do it. We're kind of experiencing that as a species yes. at the moment, which is tremendously exciting. So there's a polarised experience, one that's been very dark and frightening, but at the same time there's a dislodging that's happening as well and a fresh journey of discovery and I'm very excited to be alive now and part of these public conversations at this time. Oh gosh me too it's a very exciting time and and like for me having had that knowledge from way back then watching it unfold as it has over these years particularly these past few years is incredibly exciting because we're coming to a period of time when humanity is no longer going to be humanity by itself we're going to be a part of the greater collective community definitely that's why Haim Ashed made that statement yeah but clearly because he wants us the human race to be at that table yes ed mitchell who passed away the year before all this process began with the leaking by chris mellon to uh, the new york times made his statement so boldly and courageously calling on the american government to declassify its ufo files and come clean about Mm. being in contact with other space bearing civilizations because he believed we can and should be at that table to be able to say, well, this is our planet. We are the human race. These are our genders. These are our desires. Yeah. And to, to, he believed that was possible. And I believe it's possible because I believe we have friends at that table already. Oh, we, we talked do. about the yeah. spectrum of company that we're in. And I think, um, even across the spectrum of interdimensional, extraterrestrial, energy-based, there are demographics who are have a nurturing relationship towards us, who mm. like us, <laughs> who yeah. want humanity to prosper. And when we listen to our ancestors, they talk about people from the Pleiades coming to help us, mm. people from mm. Sirius coming to nurture our civilization. John in the New Testament talks about spirits coming to inform us and help us. We have allies around that table. And I share Ed Mitchell's, Hamish Shedd's aspirations that we can have a meaningful part to play in that conversation because we have friends already at that table for us. Yes, we do. We do, absolutely. Oh, it's an exciting time. It's an exciting time that we live in, Paul. And and I'm so thrilled to see how your journey has unfolded. Um, Escaping from Eden is an amazing, amazing book. Uh, Scars of Eden is an amazing book that just takes it a step further. And I really like the way you did the chapters. I particularly like 
And maybe we can end on this, the story of the little two-year-old boy, a three-year-old boy. Yes, uh, John, we'll call him, not his real name, who went on a camping holiday in California to Mount Shasta. Now, some people hearing Mount Shasta will say, oh, my goodness, what happened there? Because it's an area yes. uh, renowned for paranormal activity. And what happened to this little boy of three is that he disappeared from his family's campsite. Um, and there was a search that went on for I'm trying to remember how many hours. I think it was nearly seven hours they were searching for him. And very quickly, the emergency services were there scouring the area for him. When they found him shortly before one o'clock in the morning, they found him on a path that had been thoroughly searched more than once. It was a path mm -hmm. so many of them had used on the search, and yet there he was all of a sudden, uh, anxious, disoriented, but safe. Uh, that was the end of the story, so it seemed, until a few years, uh, weeks later, when he was with his grandmother. Mm. And uh, he said from out of the blue, I don't like the other grandma, Cappy. That was how he addressed Kathy, his grandmother. And she said, what do you mean the other grandma, Cappy? What are you talking about? And then he explained what happened to him when he went missing those weeks before, that he had been led away by someone he thought was Grandma Cathy, and it led him into what he perceived as a cave with what he perceived as robotic-like creatures in it and all sorts of detritus. He, he saw discarded guns, discarded handbags and things like that in this cave. And then he began to realize this person wasn't his grandma at all. And there was something... He started, started seeing light and sparks coming off her, and he thought, is this a robot? And then this grandma, Kathy, asked him to do something unusual. Lie down, I need to examine you. So she examined his tummy, and then she said, I want you to uh, defecate on that sticky paper. And he said, but I couldn't, I couldn't go. Uh, and then this entity got angry with him, and said, um, you know you're not from here. You know that uh, when your mum was pregnant with you, it's because you're a star child. <laughs> you're actually part ET. And he reported this in three-year-old language to his right. grandmother. And she's absolutely horrified by what he's saying. And at first thinks this just must be some three-year-old imaginary story he's cobbled together from stuff he's watched on the TV. And her initial reaction is to phone up her uh, son-in-law, I think it was, and say, what on earth have you been letting John watch on the television? And uh, they said, oh, no, 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 it's not that. And yes, he told us that story as well. We just thought, what a fertile imagination. And at the end of that conversation, she was very restless and unsatisfied with that explanation. Because what would he have watched that would have him defecate on a piece of sticky paper? That's not in yeah. anything he'd have seen on the TV. And then she began to remember, a bit like me with the scars of Eden, remembering my own experience and making the connection. She does the same. She realized she'd been camping there 
and had woken up outside of her tent, outside of her sleeping bag, lying face down in the dirt, feeling very unwell with a puncture wound in her neck. And uh, when the people she was camping with gathered around her and checked to see if she was all right, they realized somebody else who had slept indoors was feeling very unwell. They had a puncture wound in their neck. And as they compared notes, they said, actually, this whole experience has been odd because we've camped here so many times. Where's all the wildlife? And they hadn't heard birds. They hadn't seen butterflies. They'd seen no creatures wandering through the forest. And it had freaked them out a little bit. And then in the night, they'd been a little comforted by the fact they could see eyes staring at them from the forest. And they thought, oh, good. Well, at least there are some deer here. <laughs> and now she's thinking, perhaps those weren't deer. And perhaps the experience I had, and it took her months to recover from whatever happened, wasn't a spider bite with only one fang after all. And maybe it's connected with this missing time in John's story and this anomalous story. Well, John's explanation given to him by this odd entity, whatever it was, about his mother's pregnancy and the fact that he was part ET is part of a far wider pattern of stories that goes back thousands of years. Um, you listen to the story of the Pasi Buddha, who's regarded as the 22nd incarnation of Buddha before Siddhartha Gautama Buddha. Listen to the story of Lao Tzu's mother, or the mother of Jesus, or the mother of John the Baptist, mm -hmm. or in Hebrew history, the mother of Isaac. They are all stories of anomalous conceptions, anomalous pregnancies. And they are stories about children who are different because of it. I've now learned there are mothers all around the world right now, and I mentioned one earlier, who would tell similar stories given the opportunity, but they tend to be stories that are held very, very tightly, very closely. Mm -hmm. But the phenomenon of this story, the phenomenon of this experience, we might call them star children, indigo children, is Perfect. as old as human civilization, as wide as the planet. And what happens if we start listening to that story with respect? Again, it tells us we're in company and the company is very involved in our story. Mm. Very, it's so interesting. <clears throat> my understanding from my star people, uh, the star, I call them my team, the team that I work with are the ones that are benevolent, uh, uh, wanting to help humanity. And um, they told me that they have this universal law that they follow that they cannot interfere, give outside interference yes. with a developing nation. But like that yep. Star Trek edict. Yes, that's right, the prime directive. <laughs> the prime directive. So what they do instead is they have volunteer souls who agree to come to this reality and effect change from the inside out. And these are the star seeds, the indigo children, the... Yes. Uh, our first lot, my generation, came in in the 50s. We were the first lot that came in. At that time, we are very human. We are human. There's nothing not human about us. But we came knowing we had specific work to do. Yes. 
Now, what yeah. might surprise a lot of people is that what you have just said about souls coming into this material life with an assignment was part of mainstream Christian belief right at the beginning of Christianity. Mm. That this idea that we are conscious beings before <clears throat> we are material beings and that we are here to learn something or to contribute something to a cosmic learning, that was taught by Plato. That was believed by people like Clement of Alexandria, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, <laughs> Origen, Marcion, and it was part of the mainstream conversation until orthodoxy began narrowing, narrowing, and then sort of got militarized by its anchoring to the empire. And all these other ideas that had been pushed to the fringe were then officially off the topic and were taboo. But all that time ago, you would hear church fathers preaching sermons, writing books, talking about exactly this. And again, I think it's a frame of understanding that can allow us to live with greater courage. Mm. That mm. if we can understand this material life is an arena for us to learn something and do something and contribute to a wider learning, then I think we can go at it with real enthusiasm and courage and without the same fear that we have yeah. when we think this is all there is and we hold yeah. on to everything so tightly for dear life. Great. Oh, well, that's, I, I wasn't aware that that was an old teaching. That's very, very, very interesting. Oh, well, so this is just absolutely exciting times we are living in, Paul. I cannot wait to see what is happening next, uh, because I tend to feel that things are about to come to this year. It's going to be really interesting. It is. I said last year that it was going to be interesting, but it's going to be really interesting. And I'm excited to see what happens next. And where are you going to from here, Paul? What's your next step? Well, once again, uh, I find when I started writing The Scars of Eden, there was almost a feeling that the book was writing itself, that, yes. that things started happening that shaped up where I was going to go with The Scars of Eden. And it's the same with the book that's coming next. Um, the paths that I've been set on by the scars of Eden and the interaction with so many people around the world will have me addressing the question, what other knowledge was buried along with our ancestors' knowledge of ET contact? And where I'm going to go, I'm going to sit at the feet of African elders who do tradi traditional initiation. Because oh. in some cultures in Africa, when a male goes through initiation, as a young teenager, they are often told all the information that's in the scars of Eden. And I want to know <clears throat> what else are you told? So I, I'll be spending some time in that African context. I'll be spending some time in the Philippines where I have a really warm connection with people who've curated the folklore there that relates to these things. What other knowledge have they curated? Being in Australia, I really have to give mm. a respectful ear to the Indigenous knowledge that is here because there is a lot that speaks to our place in the cosmos Absolutely. and similarly with my Native American friends. So it's that uh, sh those shamanic traditions, those mystical traditions, those folkloric traditions 
that can tell us what was the other knowledge that was buried. And just to make it even more exciting, I'm going to show how that knowledge has been hidden and resurfaced all around the world uh, throughout the ages. So that will be the remit of that book. Oh, that's exciting. Well, I can't wait for that one. <laughs> Is that going to be next year or will we wait, be waiting a little bit longer for that one? Uh, I'm, I'm waiting to find out. At the end of this year, I'm going to do audio versions of Escaping from Eden and The Scars of Eden. And once I'm through that process, we'll be in the process for releasing the sequel to The Scars of Eden. That's a lot of work. That's a lot of work, Paul. But, but, but you know, when you love what you do, it's not work, is it? No, that's right. It, it, it's it is a lot of work, but it gives you energy. Yes, and it's yes. a journey you enjoy. It, it is. So where can my listeners find you, Paul? What, what media are you on? Sure. Well, for the books, for Escaping from Eden and the Scars of Eden, you can go anywhere books are sold. Amazon, Kindle, Hive, Book Depository, Barnes & Noble. You'll be able to buy them right now. You can keep up with me on the Fifth Kind TV on YouTube, also on the Paul Wallace channel on YouTube. And if you go to my website, paulanthonywallace.com, Anthony with an H, Wallace, W-A-L-L-I-S, paulanthonywallace.com. That will keep you up to date with everything I'm involved with. Awesome. And are you on Instagram and Twitter as well? I should be, but uh, no, I'm not yet. When, perhaps when I get a PA, I can start covering all the bases. <laughs> oh, I know. The social media is so hard. I struggle with it's, it, like Instagram. I'm Twitter. mainly on Facebook. You can find me on Facebook and dialogue with me through that. But it's mainly through the comments on the Paul Wallace channel and the Fifth Kind TV that I get into the uh, the deepest conversations. Right. And the, the Fifth Kind TV is absolutely fascinating. You have some really, really great stuff on there. And again, you're educating the people, uh, encouraging, questioning, so everybody go and subscribe and watch. It's well worth well worth looking into. Paul and his co-host cover some really, really great stuff. It's awesome. So, Paul, thank you again, once again for your time. Uh, as always, I absolutely love talking to you. I enjoy our conversations immensely. And I'm really excited to watch as your journey continues. So thank you for your time. Oh, thanks, Marianne. I love walking the Shadowlands with you, and I'll look forward to the next time. Awesome. As I was editing our conversation, I was kicking myself for not following up on a couple of things that were said at the beginning, or rather for not getting back to it, but we both just got so caught up in where the conversation was organically going that it simply slipped my mind. One would have been Paul's comments about the soldiers who contact him about their experiences in Iraq and how it ended up being an archaeological mission. What I wanted to ask was, what was the purpose of that? What was the US military going there to steal? And make no mistake, stealing it was. It obviously was items of some importance to the US government for them to send the military in to steal it. For what purpose? 
and to what end? Which then begs the question, was that the whole reason why the US government went into Iraq to begin with? Anything else being simply an excuse, a cover for the real mission, which was to steal these items. Possibly these are questions that Paul doesn't have the answers to, and he did say the soldiers themselves didn't know. We would simply end up speculating. Also, it likely would have taken our conversation in a whole different area, to the area of conspiracy and manipulation of humanity in a different way, to what we have discussed during our conversation. So perhaps I can chat with Paul about that next time I get the privilege of chatting with him. Meantime, if any of you listening have any questions you might like me to ask Paul, then simply email them to me at shadowlands at yahoo.com and I'll be sure to ask him. If anything, Paul and I have discussed in this episode creates questions for you, then this is a good thing. It's vitally important for us to always question because in questioning, you may find answers that you didn't know you were looking for. Our bumper music this episode is called Lost Voice from Alan Gray. I want to thank the following people, Duncan, Michelle, Kylie, Thicky, Kelly, Helen and Mish. These wonderful people have been supporters of our podcast for some time now. They support me on Patreon and their financial help makes a huge difference to the cost of producing this podcast. I'm so grateful to them all and appreciate them immensely. If you enjoy our podcast, then please consider becoming a patron. Just head over to patreon.com forward slash ncc15 and sign up now. As a patron, you get early access to the podcast episodes and a special members only page on the podcast website www.walkingtheshadowlands.com and you get my absolute appreciation and gratitude. Check out our Facebook page, Walking the Shadowlands, our Instagram feed of the same name, and our Twitter feed at Shadowlands10. TikTok under walking underscored the underscored Shadowlands. Like and follow for teasers of our upcoming episodes. If you enjoyed this episode, then please leave a positive rating and don't be shy to leave a written review on your chosen podcasting platform or on the podcast Facebook page, Walking the Shadowlands. And, of course, so you don't miss out on any episode, make sure you subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform. This podcast is available on all free podcasting platforms, including iHeartRadio and Pandora as well. Also, if you have Alexa, simply say these four words, Open Walking the Shadowlands, and Alexa will play our latest episode for you. If you don't have a smartphone, then you can listen to the episodes from the podcast website, www.walkingtheshadowlands.com. For those hearing impaired, there's a full written transcript of each episode on the website, so you don't miss out at all. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your workmates about our show. Encourage them to listen and to subscribe also. The more, the merrier. Thanks for listening to this episode. Kakite ano oyakoi. I'll see you again.
Thanks for listening.